All right, Romans chapter 14. And so we have been going through, like I said, uh, quite a bit of content here. And uh, what we're going to do tonight is kind of continue the same thoughts that we started with Romans 12. So Romans 12 talks about this idea of Christian conduct, Christian lifestyle, living as a follower of Christ. Um, and which we said before kind of follows up from Romans chapter 8. It's kind of the natural love of Christ. All those many persecutions and trials that come into my life, they will not separate me from Christ. So because that is true, we kind of talked about why we kind of put a little bit of a, a pin in chapter 8. We went 9, 10, 11, talked about those things, God's sovereignty, uh, human's free will, humanity's free will rather, and then also the Jewish response to all of this. And then chapter 12 picks up with where 8 left off. Because we know we are in Christ, because we know we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, we have the love of Christ which cannot be taken away, now I can live in a way that honors him. I can live free in a way that honors him. And so chapter 12, we talked about this. It opens up with the best way it could in those first two verses, encouraging us to be a living sacrifice. And then really honestly, the next couple chapters talk about how that is shown in our lives. And so chapter 12 talks a lot about these little kind of short statements, little encouragements, little things that we can strive to do and to be in Christ. Chapter 13 talks about what? What's kind of the overall picture of chapter 13? Yeah, in our relation to government, in our relation to the authorities over us, not necessarily just government. Um, I always told our students that if you really want to make an impact for Christ in your school, be the most respectful student you can to your teacher. And that's an authority over you, right? Just like someone who works in a job that has a manager or a boss or a supervisor or a foreman or whatever. The more respect, honor, kindness, I show that individual, it's going to help me to be the best employee I can be. So the best student are those who are respectful to their teachers. I always thought it was funny. Kids would tell me they wanted to live for Christ. And I would ask them, how do you interact with other students? And how do you interact with your teacher? And pretty short inside conversation, you'd find out that they were rude to their teacher. They're rude to other classmates. And I said, well, it's going to be hard to make an impact, impact for Christ when that's the picture that you're showing your classmates and your teachers. And so Romans 13 is all about... And we summarize it this way, if the law is right, I can submit. If the law is right, I can submit. And so we did talk about the fact that there's sometimes governments and authorities ask us to do things or require us to do things that actually go against our conscience as believers. Okay, The Sanhedrin in Acts 5 told the apostles, don't preach Christ. They said, we got to do what's right in God's eyes. We're going to preach Christ. But they also joyfully and willingly took on them the consequences of that decision, right? They went ahead and said, we know if we continue to preach Christ, we're going to be beaten and imprisoned. We're okay with that. Because to preach Christ is more important than to have security and comfort of not going through those things. So there's some things in our government that we say, you know what, we respectfully refuse to follow that. There's other things that we can submit to. We may not necessarily like them, but we submit to them because it's not a violation of our Christian conscience. And so then we get to chapter 14 and carrying the same idea, the same words. Remember, it's all kind of a continuing thought from chapter 12. And so in chapter 14, we find this idea. And in, if you have an English, obviously in the English Bible, you may have a little subtitle above chapter 14 that says something like the weak and the strong, the strong and the weak, um, some kind of a subtitle like that. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about in this chapter. And so I'm going to have somebody read uh, let's see, we're going to read verses, let's start with just one through three. We'll kind of start with one through three. I think that might be a good place to, 
start. Um, yeah, we'll start there. Can I get a volunteer to read just the first three verses to get us on the right track, get us flowing? Sandra, awesome. Okay, so this is sounds, or this should sound a little familiar to another book, another chapter in Paul's writings. Where did Paul talk about this, this elsewhere in the New Testament? Yeah, in Corinthians, right? It's a similar idea. So apparently, the church in Rome and the church in Corinth seemingly have the same kind of an issue, okay? So you can see why Paul's addressing this. To us, we wouldn't think much about this, meat or vegetables, Okay. I know the answer for all of us would obviously be meat because we're all Americans. We love bacon. But, okay, vegetables, blah, right? That's just wasted space on a plate. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, but as far as church, right, and Christians and believers, we read this and go, well, that's not something we would fight about today, right? What's an issue that we might fight about in the church today that's not a doctrinal issue but a, as we're going to find out, a liberty or personal conviction issue? Music, okay? I've always said if you remove, remove music and Bible translations from our churches, we wouldn't know what to fight about. We would just stare at each other and go, I don't like you wore that color shirt to church today. Like, we just come up with dumb stuff, okay? Anything else we might have issues with? Obviously, music, Bible translations, I mentioned that. Okay, dress, kind of touched on a little bit. The dress meaning modest versus immodest, that's a biblical issue, Dressing up for church, dressing down for church. That's where we see the liberty issue, okay? Modesty is something the Bible talks about. We can't say that's a liberty issue, okay? But as we've talked about before, modesty is also somewhat defined by our culture, right? Our culture has an idea. Now, you could say, well, the cultural norm has definitely dropped from when maybe some of you were children. What I mean, though, is we see something as modest or immodest, even in the world, based somewhat on our culture, some of its moral upbringing, some of its influence from religion, but a lot of its culture. This is why uh, you go to tribes in Africa and women wear nothing on the top. They're just topless. To those individuals in that tribe, that's not a modesty issue, okay? Because culturally, they don't see it that way. So there is some level of cultural understanding here, but the idea is modesty is something the Bible speaks about. We need to dress and live modest lives. We need to cover up, right? We need to be careful not to tempt someone else to sin. That's the idea. But in churches today, it's more about do you wear a suit? Do you wear a tie? Do you wear a dress? Those are the things we're talking about that usually tend to be issues of division that maybe we can kind of see with the meat and the non-meat issue in Romans 14, okay? But really, you could keep going, couldn't it? Those are kind of the big ones, right? Music, Bible translation, dress. Um, Color of the carpet, color of the chairs, okay? How long the service goes, how many songs we do, right? Uh, when we take the offering, how do we take the offering? I know one church I heard of, they had an issue with um, people would sing solos with a microphone like in their hand, and they didn't like that because they would move around when they were singing. I'm not going to imitate moving around and singing because you don't need to have that after you've probably already eaten dinner. I don't want to make you upset, but get you kind of queasy. But people within this church started doing that. So what did the church leadership do? They said, okay, fine, we'll remove that. We'll put it on a stand. And you have to just stand there with your hands by your side and just sing. No moving. Okay? 
the same church ended up saying, okay, and this is where like Pastor Keith and Renee would know more about this than anyone in the band probably really. Um, certain songs that had certain beats, like if, it hit, if the beat hit on this and this, it couldn't do that. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. I mean, it started getting really, really, really narrow, right, as far as what was okay. Those are the kinds of things, not 100% the same maybe, but kinds of things we can get our mind around of what's happening here, okay? Um, I'm going to go ahead and just read a couple things from the notes here. And the outline there, if you're new with us tonight, uh, this is not an exhaustive outline. I'm going to read things and talk about things that aren't directly in your outline. This outline, as we've said all along, is just a tool for you to have to keep a hold of to do more study later. And so there's no fill in the blank. It's just information so you have an idea of what the chapter kind of talks about. So uh, the distinction in the Roman church that we're talking about here, the distinction uh, or this distinction in Romans is speaking to a truth in all of our lives. We have all been weak and we've all been strong. Sometimes we are strong in one area and weak in another. This is not about thinking we are better than someone else in the church. It is about seeing where our brothers and sisters are and encouraging them appropriately. So I wanted to kind of set the stage with that. When you read this, Paul identifies two groups in the church. And how does he describe them? Strong and weak. I can't get mad at that because that's how Paul defines them. Okay? And when you read this, he actually talks about how that is explained. But I wanted to read this real quick. Um, Because another subtitle for this chapter could be, When Christians Disagree. When Christians Disagree. And I think I put this in your notes. It should be a long excerpt from Warren Worsby's commentary. Um, And I wanted to read this together and just kind of show you how he opened up his commentary on this chapter. This is what Wiersbe says. Disunity has always been a major problem with God's people. Can anyone attest to that? Disunity has always been a major problem with God's people. Even the Old Testament records the civil wars and family fights among the people of Israel. And almost every local church mentioned in the New Testament had divisions to contend with. That should make every church feel a little bit better about themselves. Okay, if they're in the Bible and they had issues, we have issues, we're okay. The Corinthians were divided over human leaders, and some of the members were actually suing each other. And all these references are here. You can look up on your own. But this is just a summary idea. The Galatian saints were, quote, biting and devouring one another. The Galatian church was dealing with this issue of biting and devouring one another. And we said, what does that talk about? They weren't literally biting each other. What is that? What is Paul talking about when he says that they were biting each other? Bickering? That's a good way to say it. Yeah? They're using their words, right? They were attacking each other with their words, and they were biting words. And we said this before. Has anyone ever said anything about you or to you that was biting, you would describe as biting? We've all been there. And he says, if you keep doing that, you're just going to devour each other. You're going to consume and use each other up. You're going to waste each other is the idea in the original Greek language. And so... The Galatian church were dealing with this biting and devouring one another. Uh, The saints at Ephesus and Colossae had to be reminded of the importance of Christian unity. In the church at Philippi, two women were at odds with each other, and as a result were splitting the church. So think about that for a minute. He goes on to say this, No wonder the psalmist wrote, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133.1 There's a a lot of truth in that psalm. How good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, this word unity does not mean uniformity. It's not we all forget our individuality and just 
act like each other and talk like each other and dress like each other and just we forget anything that would cause any disagreement. It's saying that even in the midst of disagreement over a liberty non-essential issue, we still have this unity. Why? What's our unity in the church founded in and on? It's, it's actually in a person, right? It's in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when I disagree with a brother or sister about a minor thing, I don't have to let that divide our fellowship because our fellowship is not in that, it's in Christ. So how does that play into our study through the book of Romans? Written to the church at Rome. The church at Rome was divided over special diets and special days. But to summarize the division the church was battling, it was over special diets and special days. Some of the believers thought it was okay to eat meats. Maybe, it doesn't say specifically in this text, but we know in Corinthians, the, the issue with the meat was it was sacrificed to idols. So maybe the issue was the fact of not only just eating meat, but also eating meat sacrificed to idols. While others thought that it was a sin. It's okay to eat meat, so I'm going to do that, even if it's sacrificed to idols. Other believers were like, you can't put that in your body. That's a sin. You can't do that. So they were divided over this. Others observed the Jewish holy days, while others thought that wasn't needed. You could even say this way. Some thought this day was special and that day was special. Others thought every day was the exact same. There was no difference. Had they just observed their own convictions in these areas, all would have been fine. If they just would have observed their own convictions in these areas, all would have been fine. However, it was when they began to judge one another for these matters and think they were surely on the right side of the debate. That's when the issue arose. So how does Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, address this issue? So Paul gives the church some, what I would call, one another direction. Some one another direction. And I, I'm, I hope you notice in the New Testament, there's a lot of one another advice, right? Love one another, pray for one another, edify one another. There's a lot of one another advice in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And so let's look at what Paul lays out here. So in your notes, you see here, the first thing he encourages them to do is to receive one another. He actually talks about this from verses 1 through 12. 1 through 12. So we read the first three verses. Let's go ahead and read uh, verses 4 through 12. So a lot of verses. Uh, we can break it up, but if there's somebody that would like to read all of them, we can go ahead and do that. If not, I can go ahead and divide them up a little bit. So is there anyone that would read verses 4 through 12 for us to keep, the, keep going through the text? Okay, Matt. Awesome. Thanks. Okay, so we see this idea here. And by the way, doesn't Paul make it just so easy? 
It's almost like you read that and go, duh, like that, I get that, okay? But the problem is that we've started defining our own personal convictions as biblical convictions. And we've kind of exchanged those two things. Now, let me be clear. There are things in Scripture that you cannot, and we'll even cover this more later, you cannot just escape by saying, well, that's not my conviction. There are things that are black and white in Scripture that all believers must understand this is for all of us. But there are things also that are not necessarily for all of us and are more personal or individual convictions. And so again, don't take chapter 14 out of the context. The reason I'm going to do these things that Paul lays out is all because of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, right? I want to be a living sacrifice. I want to exemplify Christ. I want to glorify him. I want to do his will, which is holy and acceptable. And so this is how, chapter 14 is another example of how I can live that out. And I love that Paul does this. And we know it's under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But I love he writes to the church one thing. And let me just be real for a second. How many Christians do you think in the Roman church, meaning the church at Rome, read or heard read these first two verses in chapter 12 and went, I could do that. This is how we are today, right? Aren't Christians like this today? Live as a living sacrifice to God. Got it. I can do that. Or we even go a step farther if we're not careful and we say, I am doing that. And we're like the rich young ruler. Keep all the commandments. I've done that since I was a kid. So sometimes we read these things and we go, I could do that. And then can you imagine the church as he's going through chapter 12 and they're going, oh, that's what it looks like. Oh, that's what it looks like. Oh, oh, I got to do that. Oh, okay. And then he gets to 13. Submit to the authorities above you. Don't really care for that one because it's the Roman government and they tend to be a little, you know, on the persecution side. So I don't really want to do that. Then you get to 14. Hey, those weak brothers that you think are weak, this is how you live as Christ for them. So every chapter, he's seeming to build more and more on this. And I can almost imagine the Christians in the Roman church going, maybe I'm not doing this. Maybe I'm not really where I should be right now. But that's good because that means what? We can then repent and move forward. So notice the key here in the opening couple of verses uh, that we read. Uh, he's, he says it right there in verse 1. Uh, Him that is weak in the faith receive you. Receive you. And so the key there is this idea of receiving one another. This phrase means to take to, to take in. Okay, to take to. Or to take in. What does that sound like to you? Like what kind of word picture could you imagine to take in or to take to? I always think of a house. I don't know why I think about this. I think about my home. I think about taking someone into my home. That's that idea of taking them in, right? Uh, It's an intimate relationship. You're no longer out here just an acquaintance or a friend. I'm actually taking you into this close fellowship. That's kind of the idea. To take in, to take to. It also means in addition Right? To take in addition to, uh, to take to oneself. To take to oneself. And one definition or use, or use rather, this is kind of why I think of the home idea, actually means to take into one's home. To take into one's home. So to take to oneself is the idea here. Paul's first counsel is not to reject the one we consider weak in the faith, but to actually draw close to him. To draw close to him. Remember that either group, on either side, consider themselves most likely the strong group, right? Did you ever stop and think about that when you read this text? Paul says, to the strong receive the weak. But as the leaders of the church are saying that, you've got to believe there are people in the church going, 
okay, well, since I'm the strong one, I guess I'll receive the weak ones over there. And the people on this side are going, well, since we're the strong ones, we'll receive them. Because that's how we think as Christians. We instantly think our personal convictions are the most biblical, therefore we're the most right. And so we think that way. But notice Paul doesn't really consider that a problem. But we are going to decide in a minute here that Paul does define in the text who the weak and the strong are. It would seem that Paul would define those that are strong in the faith as those who are understanding their spiritual liberty in Christ and who are not enslaved to diets and holy days. We can see this as the text goes on, and we'll unpack it more in a little bit. In some circles, even today, as true as it was in a Roman church, the stricter the rules are that you live under, the more mature you are in Christ. That's the mindset of the weaker Christians in Rome. At the Roman church, I should say. The more restrictions, the more rules, the stronger, more mature we are. The more free you live, the more weak you are. But that's not necessarily true. That's not necessarily the case. Alva McLean, who wrote a commentary in the book of Romans that I've been kind of referencing through this study, identifies the weaker in the faith this way. And I thought it was interesting how he describes this. The weaker in the faith would be those who are weak in the faith as Christians who have not laid hold by faith upon these wonderful things that have been unfolded in the book of Romans. So those who are weak in the faith, according to Alvin McLean, are Christians who have not laid hold by faith upon these wonderful things that have been unfolded in the book of Romans. They are the men who have not yet been able to apprehend and grasp full and free salvation as it is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not able to apprehend or grasp full and free salvation as it is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, receive the weaker ones. And it seems to suggest in Scripture, especially in this chapter, tells us that the weaker ones are those who thought they were more mature by limiting and restricting more and more things in their life. And the stronger ones are the ones who are living free in Christ. Again, not without personal convictions, but without a fear of trying to fall under others' restrictions and their own personal things. And so how do we receive them? What does Paul say not to do when we receive them? It says it right there in uh, verse 1. It says receive them. But how, how are we not to receive them? Go ahead. Okay. What's the phrasing there? Especially in the King James, it kind of uses a phrase. Okay, not to dispute over doubtful things. The King James says doubtful disputations. Okay? Some of you might have other things that say judging or those kind of things. That phrase is really interesting. The idea here is not to judge his doubtful thoughts. Don't become or don't welcome them in, rather, merely to argue and deliberate with them about what is true. When you look up this phrase that's talked about here, doubtful disputations or this argument type thing, it actually has the idea of deliberating, like to debate something, to decide what is true. And you might think, well, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to strive for what is true? Paul's point is, when you receive them in and take them in, by the way, what would be a reason I would bring the weaker into my home? Okay, could be the disciple, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Hospitality, absolutely. What was a common thing the early church did? They met house to house doing this. Breaking bread and having fellowship dinners, right? 
So if I invite a weaker brother into our house and we're coming them over for dinner, point is the dinner conversation isn't going to be us trying to convince them they're wrong. That's the idea. Make sense? I don't deliberate and debate and argue with them about this. I'm bringing them in to have that common unity. It doesn't mean we don't have conversations. It means be careful how you have the conversation, and that's not the goal. The goal is not to deliberate. The goal is to encourage and strengthen in Christ, and we'll unpack that in a little bit here. So he says not to bring them in this way, to don't welcome them in merely to argue and deliberate with them about what is true. Receive them just as they are in Christ. That's the idea. So I put in your notes here a few reasons why we receive them. What are the grounds by which we receive these individuals into our home or into our lives? So the first thing is we receive them because God has received them. We saw that in verses 1 through 3, right? Uh, Paul makes it pretty clear here. For one believes that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eateth herbs. Notice Paul is making the distinction of who is weak and who is strong. In Paul's mind, who is the strong one? The ones who can eat anything. The weak are those who are saying they have to be vegetarians. Verse 3. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let him, I'm sorry, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. So because God has received this individual, I don't need to judge them on the basis of their convictions. If they're in Christ, God has received them. Therefore, as a follower of Christ, I can receive them. We cannot use non-biblical grounds to determine if someone is or is not a Christian. We can't use non-biblical grounds to determine if someone is or is not a Christian. They are saved by the gospel, not submitting to our personal convictions on what that looks like in our lives. So we must not argue or fight each other in these areas. So non-biblical grounds for salvation would mean, you know, this person does this. I don't even know if they're saved. That's an example of how you would hear that be said. They say they're a Christian, but I know they do this or they've done that. Not a direct sin according to Scripture, nothing like that, but just something that's against my conviction. I don't even know if they're saved. And we do this all the time. By the way, we do this when people actually sin too. We have this misconception that because someone sins in some way that somehow, well, they couldn't be a Christian and do that. Time out. You're attacking the very power of the gospel when you say stuff like that. If they, listen, as a Christian, I've sinned. As a Christian, you've sinned. It's just, it's, it's, we don't invite it. We don't welcome it. We don't look for it. We don't encourage it. We avoid it. We stand against it. But the reality is, my ability to submit to his ways does not maintain my salvation. My salvation is maintained because he has sealed me into the day of redemption by his indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we can't take these personal convictions, or we'll say things like this, well, they're saved, but... They're not very mature. They're saved, but I don't really know if they have a great walk with the Lord because look at what they do or don't do or whatever. So we've got to be careful when we use non-biblical grounds to determine if someone is or is not a Christian. St. Augustine said it best, and I've referenced this many times. Um, in essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. What does charity mean? Love. Right? Love. So in essentials, we have unity. What are the essentials? Jesus Christ is born of a virgin. He's the Son of God. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried again. The Bible is the Word of God. Salvation through grace by faith alone. 
Um, all these biblical truths, those are the essentials. Those are the core values of the Christian faith. If those things are not like-minded and we're not one on those things, we can't have true Christian unity. But if we are in agreement on those things, we can have unity, which then leads us to the next area in non-essentials. Style of music is a non-essential. Dress outside of modesty is a non-essential. Order of service in the American church, non-essential. How often we have church minus gathering on the first day of the week or the day of the Lord, non-essential. These are the things that we tend to fight about, but yet they're non-essentials. We can have liberty here, and it's okay to have liberty there. Uh, What do you think is one of the reasons why some Christians don't like Christian liberty to be encouraged? There's more than one. But why do you think, if we can read that and go, that makes sense, right? I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, St. Augustine said this. Why then do so many Christians not like liberty being encouraged in the church? Yep. And you can keep all the rules and check all the rules. It's easier to live that way because, and, and everybody else, because then we know. Right. Where it gets dangerous when we have freedom. Right. Because in, the, in, in your mind, yeah. not yeah. necessarily really, that's, I'm not right, right, right. Because it's so much easier to know if there's a list and there's rules to follow. Yeah. Step by step. It just is yeah. easier to for some people. Yes. I agree 100%. I wish there was, I wish that was the case. I wish I could just go, here's the 10 things, don't do the 10 things, do these 10 things, and we're good, right? Okay, Sandra. Right, right, right. No, yeah. That, that right there is a great point. I love that you pointed that out. I think that's, that's the truth of it. There's so many extra things we put between us and actually sinning because we are fearful of our own weakness. And we know, we know we're weak. We know we can fall. And so that's a great example about Adam and Eve. You know, God said not to eat of it. When Eve was tempted by Satan, Eve said, God said, don't eat it, don't touch it. But God never said, don't touch it, right? He said, you can touch it all you want, just don't eat it, right? By the way, what could they have eaten in the garden? Everything else, right? Anything else. But they, mm, that one thing I can't have, right? But I love that you said that. I think that's, there's a lot of truth there. I think we do that in our own lives. And again, personal conviction-wise, when we know our weaknesses or maybe our besetting sins— we can put some things in between us and sinning, and it's okay to do. There's, I encourage that, right? Because we want to make sure that we're being aware of where we are weakest or where we're most likely to stumble. Put those precautions there. But those precautions are not Bible. And I can't take those precautions and go, okay, everyone else now needs to do the same thing. Okay, Sandra. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Right. Right. And or rather, it's more even in other people's lives. Right? I don't believe God can do that for you, so I need to give you these lists of things not to do. Right? Absolutely. Any other reasons why you think people may not like this talked about, this idea of Christian liberty, that I have a, a degree? Now, again, I hate to have to say this, but the Bible does say there are some things that are black and white, right? The do's and don'ts, if you will. It's spelled out. But beyond that, when we tell people you have a personal conviction or personal liberty in Christ, why do you think some Christians don't like that talked about? Kathy? Okay. I remember when I was in youth group, one of the first things I remember hearing in youth group was at that time uh, going to the movies was not encouraged. Um, you couldn't go to the movies. I mean, and I was coming out of an unsaved background where I thought the, going to the movies was the least sinful thing I could do. Um, but that's what I remember hearing. And I remember the reasoning was is, and I asked, I said, but if I'm going to a movie that is okay, then I know I'm guarding my eyes, I'm not seeing something I shouldn't see, then why would just merely going to the theater be bad? I could see telling someone, when you go to the movies, here's some things to consider so that you guard your eyes, guard your heart, guard your mind, right? Don't put these kind of things before you. The Bible says not to do that. But the, the answer I got back was that they said, well, when you come out of that theater and there's, say there's like eight different movies playing, there might be one good movie and seven bad movies. And nobody knows which movie you're coming out of. So it's better to just not go at all so you're not a stumbling block. And I, I, that to me at like 16, I was like, that makes sense to me. No movies, right? Like I'm, I'm going to be totally abstain from this evil because I don't want to be a stumbling block. Why? Because we so badly don't want to cause someone to stumble. And by the way, what does Paul say about this? The more he learned of grace, the more he actually restrained himself in some areas. That's a pretty powerful statement. Not because he did it to maintain his salvation, but because he realized I can give that up for a season or for the rest of my life if it helps my brother and sister in Christ. So there's some truth to that. But again, we got to be careful how, how far we apply that individually, right? Lance. Yeah. Yes. Right. 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 Yes. Right. And I had someone tell me, and I mentioned this before, someone in our church years ago, uh, doesn't attend, hasn't attended in years. Um, I, I basically taught on the idea of um, all your sin is forgiven. Okay? I know really radical stuff here. This is edgy. Um, and I talked about how the moment of salvation, when you receive Christ, all your sin, past, present, and future, is under the blood. It's all forgiven in Christ. It has to be fully forgiven because the sacrifice of Christ is fully redeeming, right? When I, if, if I get saved and then two days later I die in a car accident and 20 minutes before I die in that car accident, 
I said a hurtful word to someone, or I showed bitterness, or I lied, or I committed a sin of some kind. And then I'm now in a car accident, dead, standing before God. Do I pay for that sin 20 minutes earlier? No, right? The Bible says we don't pay for a sin. We either pay for all of the sin or we are freed and forgiven of all the sin. We don't pay for one sin or two sins, okay? And so when I was teaching that, I talked about that, that we need to understand that we are fully forgiven and fully free from all sin. And I even told him this. I said, the sin that you haven't even committed yet is already forgiven. It has to be because that's what salvation and eternal security means. I can't lose it. Now, again, I did say we don't encourage you to sin, but that's the beauty of the gospel. I had somebody in leadership in the church say, I don't think you should have preached that in a kind of a a meeting setting. And I said, well, why, why? I just asked them. I said, well, I'm sorry. Was there something biblically wrong about that? What did I say that was wrong according to Scripture? And this guy looked at me and said, well, I don't, it wasn't biblically wrong. I just don't think you should have taught it. And I said, well, but if the Bible says it's true, and you're telling me there's nothing biblically wrong with saying that, what's the problem? And this guy, who had been saved, my goodness, 40-something years probably, maybe even more, he said, you know what, I just, all I can tell you is it just doesn't sound right to me. And I think it would encourage people to sin. And I asked him one last time. I said, but the Bible teaches that what I said is true, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, all our sins forgiven. But you don't want me to teach that to the church? No. Because you might encourage them to sin. That's the mindset we approach Christian liberty with. We all want Christian liberty, by the way. We all utilize Christian liberty. What Lance said is true. We all practice it every single day. But it's when somebody else either wants to impress on us their convictions or we want to impress our convictions on someone else, that's when the problem comes in. So one more, and then we'll uh, put a pin in this till next week. So I've said that twice now tonight. I don't think I've said that in the last, like, two years. Put a pin in it. Um, Whatever. I don't know. Um, So uh, God has received them. That's the first reason we receive them, meaning the weaker being received by the stronger. Uh, Verse 4, encouraged to know that God sustains his own. God sustains his own. Um, I'll just read verse 4. Who art thou that judgest, judgest another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. That's what I mean when I say God sustains his own. I can receive the weaker brother because God is sustaining him. The strong Christian was judged by the weak Christian because the strong did not submit to their restrictions. I am sure the strong judged the weak as well. Paul corrects this by pointing out that God is the master over them, not them over each other. What an encouragement that our Christian security does not depend on the attitudes or opinions of others, but is secure in the Christ who sustains us. The idea in this passage is that if we, the servant, right, and who are the servants of God? Who are the servants of God? All believers, all Christians, strong and weak, would be the servants of God. So if we, the servants, all Christians, is busy serving the master, and who is the master? Not a trick question. Who is the master? Christ, right? We're serving him. So if I'm the servant and I'm focused and dedicated on serving the master, 
then we will not have time or inclination to judge one another. That's a pretty freeing thought. If I am consumed with serving the master, then I will not have time or the inclination to judge another servant because I'm fully committed and dedicated to serving the Lord. And again, what better way to put into another way of saying Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 to be a living sacrifice. If I'm fully committed to Christ, I am too busy to judge another. Now again, someone may say, well, wait a minute. What about this morning? You know, you name some names of people that you said were teaching false things. As I said this morning, those are not attacks or, or, or judgments of the individual person. What was I judging this morning? The teaching. And what should we always be judging as followers of Christ? The teaching we're receiving. And so what Paul's saying is, I don't judge the individual, right? I'm not judging you as a person. I'm focused on serving Christ and receiving one another so that we can encourage each other. And we'll get to, again, as Kathy said, discipleship in a little bit. And so um, I'm going to stop right here. I almost said it again. Jeez. Um, does anyone have comment or question before we close the service tonight? Comment, question, thought? Kathy. Apparently two. I've got two because I've used them both up tonight. But it's like the grace of God and the mercy of God. Every morning it's brand new. I get more. So, or like rollover minutes. There you go. That's probably a better illustration. Any other comments, questions, or thoughts? All right. Well, I encourage you guys, uh, take some time this week, read through chapter 14. Uh, write up that outline that I give you. And I've told someone else this too. Um, get a folder. And if you've been collecting these outlines, you can just put them in a manila folder, throw them in a drawer somewhere, and have them for your own personal things. If you've missed a chapter, I know as we get to the end of this, we did the same thing with Luke, the Gospel of Luke. As we get to the end of the, of the book of Romans, if you've missed the chapter, we have all of these in digital form. I can print them and give them to you at any time. So please let me know if you need a chapter, print it off. All right? Well, let's go ahead and pray. And we'll ask God to be with our week ahead. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for the liberty that you give us in Christ. That our salvation is not kept or maintained by the things we do. But it is solely the work of Christ. It is solely the grace that you offer to us, the finished work of the cross, the burial, and the resurrection that seals and keeps us in Christ. But Father, as we live this life, we know that we see many different trials, temptations, things that want to pull us away. And in those areas, Lord, we, by your grace and by your leading, as we've dove into the, the Word of God, as the Holy Spirit has given us uh, wisdom in these things, we've put maybe certain things in our life to avoid uh, giving in to sin. Lord, those things in and of themselves are not bad. They're how you led us and how you're leading us. Guards that we've put in place to help our minds and our hearts to be focused on you. But Lord, I pray that we would realize those things are for us and that where your Bible, where your word does not give us the privilege to do so, we must not impose our personal convictions on others. Father, the word is clear in some areas that there are certain things we all, as followers of Christ, must be found, finding ourselves doing. But Lord, so often we end up in the non-essentials, pushing the non-essentials on people, um, dwelling on the non-essentials, and making that the whole point. Father, I think this is what really has damaged the church over the last few decades, where churches that preach truth in one hand impose all these non-essentials on people, 
And what ends up happening is it drives them away and they are unable to hear the truth of the gospel because of a non-essential. Lord, again, help us to stand on the truth of your word, to live gloriously for you and you alone because it's for your glory that we live. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.